Good morning, Storehouse. We'll find ourselves in two different passages today. The first one coming from Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, and Precarius, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles. They prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, that great many of priests became obedient to the faith. Next will be in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Ah, hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event that you didn't catch Andrew, we're looking at some big chunks of Scripture today. We're going to find ourselves once more in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and we're only going to spend a short amount of time there, and then we will fast forward to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. If you are new, we'd love to hang out with you or simply have the opportunity to pray for you. Um, please fill out a Connect card, leave it at the Connect desk, and one of our staff team will get back with you as soon as possible. Well, I want you to travel with me. I want you to consider something with me and, and, and come with me to the second century, to, to ancient Rome. It is during this time that there is an emperor named Decius, and he has decreed that all who refuse to pledge allegiance to Rome will be murdered. And it is in this time of the second century where countless Christians are martyred. Not too long after Decius leaves the throne, another one named Valerian takes his place, and he issues another decree that all bishops, all priests, and all deacons must be rounded up and killed. Last week, I mentioned that when it comes to Satan infiltrating the church, he's always going to begin with the officers. The news of this decree, and we're still thinking second century, the news of this decree makes it back to Rome where there was a deacon named Lawrence. One of the seven deacons, or excuse me, one of seven deacons who was serving in Rome. And so he receives this edict. He receives this decree. After reading it, he realizes that he is being summoned to go before a magistrate and they give him an offer. And here's the offer. Surrender the treasure of the church, and you will be freed. 
Lawrence agrees to surrender the treasure of the church. However, he asks for three days to go and retrieve the treasure of the church. And the magistrate agrees. And so they give him the time. And Lawrence doesn't waste any time. He goes back to his city. He goes back to his church. And he entrusts the church's finances into faithful hands. And then after he does that, he rounds up all of the poor. He rounds up the elderly, the orphan, the widowed, the marginalized. He rounds them all up. And he brings him with them, or excuse me, he brings them with him to court. And as he's bringing them with him, he goes to court. And as he shows up, the, 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 the emperor goes on to say, I told you to bring the treasures of the church. And Lawrence responds by saying, Sir, I have done what you asked for, for these are the treasures of the church. Not only does this anger the magistrate further, he is sentenced to death by fire. And as they begin to stack wood around him, preparing and eventually lighting the fire, Lawrence tells his executioners, you may turn me over, for I am done on this side. When you think of deacons, what comes to mind? Depending on your experience in the church, you may have a number of things that come to mind when it comes to deacons. And I'm sure some of those portraits aren't necessarily the portrait of Lawrence. For some of you, deacons were maybe a large committee of individuals that handled the finances of the church and pretty much everything else. For others, deacons were usually a group of individuals that did a lot of behind-the-scenes work for ministry. Or maybe for you, this is the first time you've ever even heard about deacons. The church is led through two offices, the pastorate and the diaconate, or pastors and deacons. Often, many have varying experiences when it comes to who a deacon is and what exactly their role is, because when it comes to those two things, who a deacon is and their role, the, every church seems to do something a little differently. And to this, I want to just give two points. We're not even into the sermon yet, but I want to give two points as to why it might look a little different for every church. First, the New Testament doesn't say a lot about the office of deacons. And so there's a lot of liberty concerning the function of a deacon within the church. Secondly, what you and I need to know is that when it comes to deacons, deacons are a crucial and vital part of the mission and of the health of the church. And so like pastors, there are character qualities or character qualifications for deacons. Character is foundational as we examined last week. It is foundational because it is formative and it is best tested on your worst day, not when you have your best foot forward. We're going to talk a lot about character. We talked a lot about character last week. We're doing it this week, and we're going to do it again next week. And so I want you to have that at the forefront of your mind. Character is foundational, and it is best tested on your worst day, not when you have your best foot forward. For someone like Lawrence, his character was revealed within the magistrate and his execution. And so you might ask, well, how does one develop godly and steadfast character we're going to look to Scripture and obviously the example of Lawrence, and it is through humble 
and faithful service. Service always begins with character. What, how, and who you serve reveals your character. Like last week, we're going to look at these character qualities of a deacon. This is important for you, you as the congregation, because you need to be aware of what to look for in deacons. Secondly, this is important for you because this list that we're about to walk through You can't ignore just because you're not a deacon for the character qualities that Paul lists are things that we all ought to strive for, so you're not off the hook. Finally, like last week, I want you to ask yourself the same question I gave you last week. As we consider 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, I want you to consider the question, is this my character? In fact, I dare you to ask yourself that question. Is this my character? So let me pray, and then we're going to begin for a moment. We're going to begin with Acts 6, and then we'll dig into the rest of our time. Let me pray. God, we thank you for uh, a morning where we get to gather and worship and praise your name, where we get to look to you and the work you have done for us through Jesus, namely the forgiveness of our sins and certainly us being reconciled to you, Father. As we examine your word, would it lead us by your spirit to examine our hearts? May we ultimately entrust ourselves to you depend fully on the Holy Spirit, and live in a way that honors and pleases you and certainly serves those around us. God, for those who know Jesus, may they know him better this morning. For those who do not know Jesus, may they come and know him today. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. We're going to dive into Acts 6. This is verses 1 through 7. We have to look at how uh, deacons first came about. And so as we consider Acts 6, we're going to take a bird's eye view. This is a 50,000 foot view because we have a large chunk of scripture to look at in 1 Timothy. So we're going to just dive into it. As I mentioned, the New Testament doesn't say much concerning deacons. Uh, And the first thing you need to know about deacons is that the word deacon, you're going to hear that word a lot, this, this word deacon means servant. And that's part of the reason it makes it a little challenging when we read through the pages of the New Testament because you see the word servant pop up a lot. And that's one of the things that makes it really challenging. And in reality, there are only two big areas in the New Testament where we see the office addressed and kind of addressed. Kind of addressed is Acts 6, and then specifically addressed is 1 Timothy 3. So as we, for a moment, look at Acts 6, we're going to take this bird's eye view of what's going on. I'm going to read the first two verses because this will give us some context. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we'll pause right there. Here's what's happening in the early church. Uh, this is the first century. And so what's happening is that the gospel is being advanced. People are coming to know Jesus. Jesus. 
uh, by faith. And uh, as more and more people know Jesus, as the church grows numerically, so do the needs of the church. And as a result, as these needs are increasing, there is a reality happening. People are not getting the kind of resources, care, uh, resources and care that they need. They're slipping through the cracks. Right? That's one of the phrases that we often use in ministry when it comes to how do we best minister to people? How do we best keep up? How do we keep them from slipping in the cracks? And that's what's happening in the first century church. Verse 2, And the twelve, that is the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Okay? Here's what's going on. The needs are increasing, and so the apostles get together, and they say, hey, we, we cannot continue to meet these needs of the church, these physical needs, because in doing so, we actually compromise our primary role, and that is to preach the word and the ministry of prayer. And they're not saying, oh, we're better than. They're saying, no, actually, the gospel is going to be hindered because it can't be advanced because we're constantly being pulled to do some of these other things. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to appoint seven men of these three qualities, which we'll look at in a minute. We're going to appoint these seven men so that they would tangibly meet the needs of the church. Men who are going to devote themselves to the needs of the church. And here's what I want you to see, and it's something that I mentioned a while ago. Service has always begun with character. Service always begins with character. The three things that they were looking for were people who are of good reputation, filled with the Holy Spirit, and wise. We do not get a list of their skills. And so I want to look at those briefly. So when Luke, that is the one who's writing Acts, when Luke writes that these are people who have good reputation, these are individuals who are known from within the church. Individuals who are consistent. Individuals who are faithful and dependable and respected within the church. They're not outsiders who are gurus. They are not outsiders who have it all put together. These are people from within the congregation. And then he goes on to say that they are filled with the Holy Spirit. That is that they love Jesus, that they are sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit in them, and they actually respond to those convictions. In short, they are mature believers. And then finally he says that they ought to be wise, that they know how to apply the truth of God to their lives that their lives are consistent with the teachings of Jesus and therefore rightly know or appropriately know how to apply biblical truth to daily living. Those were the characteristics that they were looking for. And what did they need them for? To make sandwiches and serve tables. We're going to talk about that later on. But that was the need. question many have are, well, were these actually deacons? And this argument comes from verse 2. 
Once more, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve. That word serve is important, to serve tables. The title or the office of deacon is not present in this text, but the work of a deacon is. And so many scholars believe, and I would agree, that these men were the first group of deacons or deacon-like servants in the church. Acts 6 gives us insight into what deacons do within the church. In short, this group of men are the forerunners to the office of deacon that we read about in Philippians 1 and then in our text for this morning, 1 Timothy 3. And so for a moment, if you're unaware as to what deacons are supposed to do, I want to give you a little bit of insight because I don't think deacons get a lot of attention. And for the most part, those who are deacons like it that way. Deacons don't like the limelight. They are like the spec ops of the church. They are always working behind the scenes, making sure all of these quiet and essential things are getting done without the rest of the congregation actually knowing about it. They're pretty stealthy. But nevertheless, let me give you at least a couple of things as to what deacons do. This is not on the screen, and I'll be very brief. The first one is that they meet the needs of the church. In Acts 6, when the apostles go on to say, hey, we got to continue to preach the word, and we're going to get this group of seven men to make sure that physical needs are met, you'll notice that they receive the what, they do not receive the how. And so deacons are problem solvers. Deacons work very closely with the congregation to figure out the needs, but also to come up with solutions. In addition to that, deacons support the ministry of the church. Once more, the apostles said, we need to continue to preach. We need to continue to devote ourselves to proclamation and prayer so that the gospel would be advanced. Deacons are the ones saying, yes, I'm in. They do not have the same authority of uh, pastors, but they do have influence. And so deacons support the ministry and mission of the church. One author says it this way, a church whose ministers are chained to the tyranny of the urgent, which so often shows up in tangible problems, is a church removing its heart to strengthen its arm. It's a kind of slow motion suicide. A church without deacons may lack health, but a church without biblical preaching cannot exist. So deacons support the ministry, specifically the ministry of proclamation and prayer. Third, deacons help others serve. So as these individuals were selected to meet the needs of the church, what they are doing is also helping to mature other Christians in that same congregation. It's not just the seven doing the work of everybody. It is the seven serving and then folding people into that service. In short, as a family, everybody has a chore, and the deacons make sure that everyone has a chore. Finally, deacons unify the body. Some would call it this way, some would say it this way, that deacons serve as shock absorbers. And so in Acts 6.1, we see that there's an issue with Hellenists and the Hebrews. Hellenists are 
Greek-speaking Jews, and they are in conflict with other Hebrews or other Jewish people. And so uh, there are tensions that are coming up from within the church. Deacons are sent in to squash those tensions, come up with a solution to make sure that things and needs are met, that peace is kept. If we fast forward it to our day, uh, to our time today, when it comes to slander or gossip, when it comes to not just physical needs or when there comes to uh, gossip happening within the church, deacons are sent in to squash all of that. Again, they're like the spec ops of the church. All of these needs come up with a result. So what was the result? And it's found in verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. What was the result of installing these prototype deacons? The word is carried and proclaimed throughout and beyond Jerusalem. More people hear about, learn about, and come to know Jesus in Jerusalem and beyond. Deacons are vital to the health of a church. And what we gather from Acts 6 is that service always begins with character. Service always begins with character. Now, let's flip forward to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. So we got a little bit of the history of the deacons and kind of what they did. Now we're going to look at the qualifications of a deacon. The first thing that we're going to look at is the character of a deacon. And I want you to notice that these character qualifications are similar to that of pastors with just a few exceptions. The primary exception being teaching. Deacons do not have to teach. Doesn't mean that they can't, but it's not a qualification. Okay. If we want to see a distinction between pastors and deacons, we could say it this way. Pastors serve by leading while deacons lead by serving. Nevertheless, here's where I want you to gather from this list. As we look, and this is actually going to be found in verses 8 through 9 and then 11. Here's what I want you to gather from this list of character qualities. It is both ordinary and exemplary. This list is ordinary, which means every single Christian in this room strives for these character qualities. It is ordinary, and it is exemplary. The things that Paul lists aren't unique to only deacons. They are characteristics that all Christians should strive for. To Paul, this is simply walking biblically, and some are going to demonstrate this in an exemplary type of way. Those who may be called and are qualified to be deacons live this life of what we'll see. They live this life both publicly and privately. And so where does character begin? Paul addresses this in verse 8 right at the beginning. Paul writes, deacons likewise must be dignified. That's where it starts. That's where character starts. Character starts with dignity. That is These individuals ought to be humble. 
they ought to be repentant, not just one time, but they are ongoing in their repentance so that they would strive to be less like themselves and more like Jesus. As a result, they are an example to the rest of the church. They are humble. They are repentant. The question that adds to this is, well, what does dignity then look like? If it begins with dignity, what does dignity look like? And Paul follows this up with three negatives. We can technically look at four from verse 11. But Paul says that deacons are not double-tongued or not slanderers. That is, these individuals guard their tongues, not only what they say, but also what they're tempted to say and what they're around. They guard their tongues. They're compassionate. Deacons um, interact a significant amount with the church, and so they both want to demonstrate compassion with the church because they're going to hear about the needs of the church, but they are also vigilant and on guard with the words that they speak, the words that they are tempted to speak, but also what they're listening to. Remember, deacons are shock absorbers. And the temptation to, uh, as a deacon, uh, the temptation is going to be because they interact so much with the congregation, they might receive sensitive information. Or an individual may want to say, you know, so-and-so, I brought this up to my community group, but let me just bring it up to you. Deacons will say, no, you're not going to bring it up to me. You need to bring it up to that person. Deacons are the ones that make it uncomfortable because it forces you and I to grow. And so deacons are not double-tongued. <clears throat> One author says it this way, a double tongue indicates a fear of man, and a, and a deacon driven by the fear of man can destroy a whole church. As I mentioned last week, Satan will do anything to get a foothold in the church and in the home. A mature deacon will not allow words to crack that door. He continues that they ought to not be addicted to wine. This is self-control. This is where they demonstrate self-control in their appetites, not just in alcohol, but in their appetites, that they do not indulge in cravings or abuse substances. In verse 11, he goes on to say that they ought to be sober-minded, meaning that they're able to make decisions with sound judgment and wisdom. Outside of that, their judgment is impaired, and so is their character. Not greedy. Oftentimes, again, when I ask you, what do you think of deacons? Oftentimes, when we think of deacons, these are individuals that handle the finances of the church in most cases. Not always, but in most cases. And so when it comes to deacons, handling finances sometimes could be a temptation to want to use those finances for personal gain, right? And we looked at this last week as far as what greed kills. Greed kills contentment. And when greed kills contentment, it affects the church, or excuse me, it infects the church. An individual who lacks contentment lacks thanksgiving. Continues in verse 11 to say that deacons are faithful, that is that they are consistent with the way in which they live that is based on biblical truth. does not mean that they are sinless or perfect, but it does mean that they are repentant. Deacons live out the consistent character that all Christians should embody. The difference is 
that many deacons, or deacons in general, or deacons specifically, are exemplary in the ordinary. Deacons in the church today, when you consider it one more time, individuals might be deacons because they're good with money. So maybe they, they're a bank teller or they work at a bank, they're, therefore this one should be a deacon. Or maybe you have heard of the individual who's a deacon because he owns his own uh, construction company and he's a contractor at deacon. Or maybe you have other individuals who man, know how to run a business well, so they're good with systems and structure, and you're like, deacon, right? Those are all good things, but none of those things have anything to do with character. And that's where churches go amiss. Those are great skills. Those might even be necessary skills. We would pray that those skills are being put to use in the life of the church. But if an individual does not meet the character qualifications of a deacon, in spite of those skills, they cannot be a deacon. Many may want to serve as deacons. Deacons have a lot of influence in the local church. But character, as Paul mentions, begins with dignity. Dignity is seen in a desire to see the church and the Word of God advanced. That's at the forefront of a deacon's mind. The character of a deacon in the church is both ordinary and exemplary, publicly and privately. Now let's consider the competency of a deacon. This is found in verses 9 through 10. Paul writes, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Blameless is another word for reproach that we looked at last week. It doesn't mean that they are sinless, but it does mean that no charges can be brought against them, that they are repentant, that they take personal responsibility. I want you to notice in this section, in verses 9 through 10, that these things, this competency, comes after character. Paul values character over competency. Now, that doesn't mean that competency is unimportant. Competency, specific to the Word of God, is vital. And so once more, Paul says in verse 9 that they are to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This phrase, the mystery of the faith, this is the message of the gospel. That God enters into human history as the man Jesus Christ to live in our place, die in our sin uh, on a cross, and then is resurrected three days later through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, And in His resurrection offers us the gift of grace that you and I cannot earn so that we would come and know Him. The mystery of the faith is that gospel message. And so when Paul uses this little word called revealed, right? Let's go back one more time. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Excuse me. When he's talking about this, he's saying that uh, the truth of God that was once hidden has now been revealed. The person and work of Jesus has now been revealed to sinners. Paul says something similar in Romans 16. Here's what he writes. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, 
according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, to be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, this mystery of the faith, it was once hidden. Now it has been revealed through Jesus. Therefore, we proclaim that to everyone and anyone. That is the mystery of the faith. Paul says that deacons must hold the mystery of the faith. What does that mean? It means that deacons must know the truth. They must know the truth of God, truth about humanity, the truth about sin, the truth about Jesus and salvation and redemption. Deacons or people like them are hungry. They're constantly wanting to grow and learn more about the Lord Jesus and His Word. They may not be the biggest reader, they may not be the strongest reader, but they're definitely the hungriest and they're definitely the most consistent. And from some conversations I've had this week, I understand that many are struggling to consistently dig into their words. For someone to be called and qualified to be a deacon, they must hold the truth firmly. Not only that, excuse me, they must know the truth well. Not only that, they must hold to the truth. See, whatever it is that you grasp with your mind, you must cling to with your heart. See, when it comes to knowing the truth, you are going to face scenarios where biblical truth is going to collide with cultural trends. One who holds the mystery of the faith well will know how to defend against it. One who doesn't, according to this text, is not fit for the diaconate. If you cannot hold firm the truth of God, and at the very least in this capacity, may not be a fit for you. You're like, well, I don't want to be a deacon. You still need to know and hold to the truth of God because you will be in scenarios where biblical truth and cultural trends are going to collide. Not the agas, right? Here we go. Live the truth. So deacons must Hold to the mystery of faith. What does that mean? They must know the truth. They must hold the truth. And finally, they must live the truth. That's what Paul means when he writes that their consciences must be clear. So the previous qualities that we looked at in in verse 8 and then again in 11, those qualities are, are lived out. And so a person with a clear conscience is a person of moral integrity, biblically ethical, if you will. Someone who is courageous, Someone who is repentant, they live this faith out. They don't just live it out on a Sunday morning in prayer before community group or on their bio in their Instagram. They live it out consistently. They live it out with conviction. That's what it means to hold the mystery of the faith. And Paul continues in this section by saying, let them also be tested first. This is incredibly important. It's incredibly important to test those who desire to be deacons or leaders or serve in many capacities. Why? Because it protects the body. 
it protects the body of Christ. To not test someone is to open the door for many dangers such as pride and arrogance and greed. We looked at that last week when Paul talks about those who desire to be pastors. He goes on to say, let them not be a recent convert, otherwise they're going to be puffed up with conceit. The danger is that they would be puffed up with a lot of knowledge, but that knowledge in their life would be inconsistent. There are dangers when it comes to pride. There are dangers when it comes to arrogance. There are dangers to the church when it comes to greed. Therefore, they must be tested first. Well, how do we test them? This is where the New Testament kind of gives you or gives us uh, space to discern the best way to test them. We know at least one for sure way, and that is going to be through, through their personal life and their family life. We're going to tackle that next. But I would add two other things. The first one would be time. How do you test someone's character? You do so over time. You're going to see them grow, hopefully mature over time as they go through various seasons of life and how they respond to each one of those seasons. Time is valuable when it comes to character. The second way I would add as far as how we would test someone's character is by putting pressure on them. Often when I meet with several of the men in our church, I will tell them, I'm going to put a lot on your plate on purpose. Because at some point, you're going to crack under pressure. And when you do, your character will be revealed. Then we'll take some stuff off. But until then, your character is going to be revealed under pressure. Why? Because character is measured best on your worst day, not when you're putting your best foot forward. Everybody can put their best foot forward at any time, but it's when you crack under pressure that character will be revealed. That's for another time. The competency of a deacon is that they will know, hold, and live the truth faithfully. So let's look at the consistency of a deacon. This is one of the areas in which we see the testing ground for ministry, so to speak. This is found in verses 11 and 12. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. All right, here we go. All right, home, home and family life are the testing grounds for ministry. Last week after we looked at this in uh, the first portion of 1 Timothy 3, I spoke with several and they're like, that was, that was really heavy. Well, we're walking into it again, right? So home and family life are the testing grounds for ministry. And so here, let me give you a couple of notes. Number one, if you are unmarried, this applies to you. If you're unmarried, can you lead yourself? Can you accept personal responsibility? Or are you regularly pointing the finger at someone else or something else? Are you mature, particularly spiritually? But yes, are you mature? Can you actually apply wisdom as opposed to just saying, I can? Can you actually do it? And are you consistent in these areas? If you're married, gentlemen, do you lead your families well? So let's look at the text once more. 
Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slander, sober-minded. These are all character qualities, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. There's that word again that we looked at last week, managing their children and their own households well. I wanted to pay a little bit of attention or specific attention to the word manage. Parents. Manage means consistency. It means are you consistent in the way in which you love your children? It means that you are faithful in the way in which you pour in and bring up your children. Managing your own household well, parents, means that you will be inconvenienced. And it is not about your comfort but it is about lovingly serving, gently disciplining, meeting the needs joyfully of your family. It means that you will be inconvenienced. It means to manage your household well, means to be sacrificial that some of your dreams you will put to death. That some of your desires and wants will be put aside. That you won't live your life through your kids because you didn't get to go to the state football game in the Valley where the last time we did that was in the 60s. Like, let it go, let it die. I've heard parents tell me, well, it's just got my, it feels like I have my life on hold. That's what it means to put some things to death as a parent. That's what it means to manage your household well. It is to fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus and to serve, certainly lead your spouse, but to serve your children the way Jesus has served you as he laid down his life for us, joyfully and willingly. That's what it means to manage your household well. That you're to be a faithful spouse. The church is the, your, your church is not your uh, your first church is not the call to ministry, but your spouse. One author says it this way: Your church can always get another deacon, but a deacon's wife cannot get another husband. Managing their own children that means gentle firmness. It does mean discipline. It means joyful love, being diligent in serving them and meeting their needs, pursuing them, being vigilant, making sure that you could protect them spiritually, that you know that you hold and that you live out this faith, the mystery of the faith. You do so in a way that guards your children. Listen, there is no such thing as a good deacon but a crappy parent or spouse. Hear me on this. It's not that managing your household well is a bonus to the diaconate. It is a prerequisite. Which leads to one other question. All right, so we got that. Can women be deacons? 
This is one of the great uh, arguments within the church. It's an in-house debate, we would say it this way. And so there are two views here. Ready? Yes and no. Those are the two views. Let's pray. No. (laughs) All right, here we go. Here at Storehouse McCallum, we believe that our sisters can be and should strive to be deacons or deaconesses. Okay? You may ask why. Four reasons. Here we go. First one is, it's a practical reason. Last week and the week before, as we looked at 1 Timothy 2, and then we looked at the start of 1 Timothy 3, Paul establishes what godly leadership ought to look like in the church, and then he addresses uh, the office of pastors, uh, but he doesn't ever address pastors' wives. Why would he address deacons' wives? It's a practical kind of a thing that seems inconsistent with Paul, that when he has specific concerns, he addresses those specific concerns, those specific heart issues. So again, this is just a practical reason. Paul addresses deacons' wives, but not pastors' wives. I would think that Paul ought to and should, or should have maybe, uh, address pastors' wives because of this office is one of not only influence, but authority. So that's one. The second one is a grammatical reason. You might be saying like, look, man, I'm not that great at English. I failed it in high school. Well, here we do it. Okay, here we go. So grammatical reason. Here's the first one. Let's go to, where is it? Verse 11. He opens up by saying, their wives likewise must be dignified. In the original, in the original Greek text, the word there is not in the text. In addition to that, the word wives in this verse can be translated as or to women. This is further confirmed by other translations, such as the NIV, the NASB, and other very uh, credible translations. Further, he uses the word likewise in verse 8 and then again in verse 11. The word likewise is a reference to another group within the same office or position. And so what Paul is doing in this section, verses 8 through 13, he is bookending the role of deacons, the role of deacons, and then specifically addressing men and women in this office, right? So Paul does these literary things where he says, all deacons, so verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. So that's all deacons. And then he unpacks character qualities, and then he addresses women, and then he addresses men, and then he comes back to addressing all deacons. Look at the end of verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their household. Oh, sorry, verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. Right? So he bookends it. All deacons must be dignified. Deacons will receive a reward. Here's some things that you need to know for character qualities about men. Here's some things that you need to know about character qualities for women. Right? So that's the grammatical reason. If that lost you, it's because Paul could be exhausting, not me. The next one is a historical reason. And as I look at my notes, I realize these are only three reasons. So let's back up. It's not four reasons. Let me give you three. I guess we can couple it this way, historical and biblical. The first one has to deal with Phoebe. Maybe some of you know who Phoebe is. Romans 16.1, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, circle that word, a servant of the church in uh, Cancre. All right. The word servant in Romans 16.1 is a noun, not a verb. She is not deaconing. She has the title of deacon. When it comes to church history, many believe that Phoebe was the one that Paul entrusted with the letter to the church in Rome. 
That means she was responsible for receiving it from Paul and then taking it to the church in Rome. This was one of the most dangerous jobs anyone could have in the first century and certainly in the centuries to follow. There were many dangers that they had to cross over and through, right? Goes back to, again, deacons are like the spec ops of the church. They handle the most dangerous of missions and some of the missions that people don't even know about, right? So D, or excuse me, Phoebe would be an additional reason. Historically, we can look to, and I'll only give you two of these, historically, we can look to church fathers and other theologians who affirmed women deacons. Two of my favorite would be John Calvin, or Johnny Calv, and Charles Spurgeon, Charlie Spurge, right? Here we go. John Calvin writes, deaconesses were appointed not to soothe God by chantings or unintelligible murmurs and spend the rest of theory time in idleness, but to perform a public ministry of the church toward the poor and to labor with all zeal, paying close attention to and diligence in offices of charity. Further, Charles Spurgeon adds, deaconesses, an office that most certainly was recognized in the apostolic churches, it would be a great mercy if God gave us the privilege of having many sons who all preached the gospel and many daughters who were all eminent in the church as teachers, deaconesses, minister, uh, missionaries, and the like. So in conclusion, we believe that women can be deacons in the church. We believe that many men and women can and should be deacons in the church. We believe that some deacons who are called and qualified men will go into the pastorate, but not all deacons will be a pastor, which I would add one thing to that. The office of the deacon is not a stepping ground to pastoral ministry. It is one of significant weight. I don't like it when people see the deacons as something less. It is one of significant weight. In addition to that, I want to go back to verse 11 because I think there's something else that we can learn about. For instance, if you are married, there's something that we can learn about our spouse. Or I should say it this way. There's something that we can learn about our spouse's character. Whether you are striving for the office of deacon or gentleman, the office of pastor. Here we go. Verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified. If we take it at face value, this still gives us some really good truth. Their wives, likewise, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Here's how I want to wrap that verse up. If you are growing in your character, if you are seeking and pursuing, let's say, the diaconate, right? But your spouse's character comes into question, you can be DQ'd before you even get into that office. That's weighty. It's not like I'm going to grow in character and my wife can do whatever she wants, but every, like, everything's on me. Like, no, we're, we're one in this. And so it's a testimony to the way in which I manage my household well and vice versa. Your spouse can at the very least, maybe I shouldn't say it that way, your spouse at the very least can bring some things into question. They could bring your character into question. The consistency of a deacon is first seen in the home and family life. This is the testing ground for ministry. 
verse 13. This is the rewards of a deacon. When we consider Acts 6, those who were the prototype deacons were called to meet the needs of the church by making sandwiches and serving tables. That's what they did. In case you hadn't noticed, particularly from Acts 6, the office of deacon is one of glory, not glamour. Yes, they are like the spec ops of the church, but they also handle a bunch of different things that other people would say, oh, I'm too good for that. I don't do that. I did that beforehand. Deacons don't question, they act. It is one of glory, not glamour. And the glory of this office is first centered upon the beauty and ministry of our Lord Jesus. And it comes with at least two rewards. First one is, this is verse 13, Paul writes, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. This can mean one of two things. Number one, this good standing mean good standing before God, not in a salvific way, not in terms of justification, but in terms of hearing those words, well done, my faithful servant, that God is most pleased with their service. The other thing that it could mean as far as good standing is that while deacons do not have the authority in the church of a pastor, they do carry tremendous spiritual influence, which means that they receive a great deal of respect in the church presently and in the pages of history. The second reward is boldness or assurance. Paul writes, those who serve well as deacons gain good, under, good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. For the deacon, assurance of faith doesn't come just through introspection, just reflection and not action. For the deacon, assurance of faith comes through service. They are in this because they want to be in this. They are in this because the glory of God is so miraculous and big in their lives. They are in this because they hold the mystery of the faith well. They are in this because they want to see the saints served and they want to see sinners become saints through faith in Jesus. And therefore, they are bold in their service. They are bold in the way in which they speak. And they are bold in the way in which they serve others. There are stories of the Black Plague uh, sometime around the 16th century. <clears throat> and a lot of these stories started surfacing back in 2020, right? Especially when we were all online and how do pastors or deacons or ministers serve people who are maybe in the hospital or are at home sick. And everybody was trying to figure out, man, how do we best do this? Maybe we'll get on Zoom, we'll, we'll wear 8,000 masks, you know, like we'll do a bunch of different things or maybe try it out. When it came to the stories of the Black Plague or the bubonic plague coming up in the 16th century, some of the people, some of the martyrs that were most highlighted in that time were deacons. 
Deacons knew how sick many saints were and went in regardless to pray for them, to meet their needs, to watch them die, to serve them and their families. Many of the martyrs at that time didn't care so much about the bubonic plague. They cared more about their brothers and sisters because they held tightly. They held tightly to the mystery of the faith, knowing that Jesus served them just the same way that they are serving their brothers and sisters. And even though ministry for them can be hard, difficult, and it beats them down, deacons hold fast to the words of Paul in Galatians 6, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. The rewards of a deacon are centered upon their love for Jesus and others. So, when you consider the work of Lawrence in the early church, bringing those who no one wanted other than Jesus, guarding the church even with his life, and eventually even being martyred, it seems very similar to the life and death of Jesus. Why? Because the office of the diaconate is the office that most closely resembles the servanthood of Jesus. This is not on the screen, I don't think. You can just listen. This is Mark 10. Jesus is talking. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That word is another word for deacon, the diaconate. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Deacons serve because Jesus first served them. Jesus has served us by making our case, that is our sin, making our case his own sharing his life of love and mercy and grace on a cross in our place and for our sin so that we might not only know Jesus, but engage this kind of service in him toward others. And so as we close, as we close, let me just remind you that the diaconate is a vital part of the church. It is an office of weight because of its stress on character. And it most closely resembles the servanthood of Jesus. So Christian, if service begins first with character, then service, by that logic, reveals your character. And so what is your service or your lack thereof, reveal. Is it, oh, I just don't want to be inconvenienced. I have a lot on my plate. Pressure proves character. What does your service or your lack thereof reveal? Is your character dependent upon your love for Jesus, or is it to appease other? Is it for your own personal gain? 
me give you this real quick. Idolatry is what hinders godly character and service. Idolatry is what hinders your character. Idolatry is what hinders your service, or at the very least affects it. Put it to death. All right, Romans 8. He's like, oh, that was kind of harsh, Pastor, right? Romans 8, put to death the deeds of the body, kill it. Kill it. And as far as coming before the Lord, that is a grace for you. Right now, you sit forgiven. So come before the Lord. Come before the Lord to receive grace, to experience grace, and to walk in grace. And if you're not a Christian, I love that you're here. Seriously, thank you so much for being here. I've mentioned this almost every week. You, don't, you didn't have to be here, and you chose to be here, and so that's an honor for us. Thank you, thank you. I want you to know that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And he did so with his life so that sinners like you and me might have new life in him. And so let me invite you to turn to Jesus to repent of your sin, to receive the forgiveness of your sin, and to walk in the grace and newness of the Lord Jesus because of the way in which he serves sinners like you and me. Church, service always begins with character. What, who, and how you serve reveals your character. Let's pray. God, as we come to a close in our, in our time of the preached word, at least, we begin by thanking you for the Lord Jesus who is not only the head of the church, but the church's great servant. And Lord, we see this in you sending him to live for us and to die for us in our place so that we might be reconciled to you. God, we thank you not only for our good God and Savior, Jesus Christ, but the friend of sinners, and the great servant, the one who cares for our souls, the one who cares for our needs, just as a doctor cares for our bodies. Service begins with character. Lord, may that be etched into our hearts this morning. Further, we confess that we regularly ignore that. We regularly ignore that and distract ourselves from that by either not serving at all and making our intentions selfish or by serving so much or in a way that is for the appeasement of others. And Lord, when we do so, either way, our hearts become restless because of fear or because of despair. 
because of arrogance or because of self-pity. But the beauty of the gospel is that you teach us and remind us that you are gracious because of Jesus. And so, Lord, much like last week, my prayer is that our hearts would find their rest and identity and service in you. That by your Spirit, you would fill our hearts fully and promptly. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would, would fill our hearts and minds with a desire to grow in godly character and maturity, with a desire to have a heart that has been formed by your grace and testing. And God, we pray for godly men and women to examine themselves this morning and come forward with, I think this is what God is calling me to do. Service always begins with character. We ask all this for your glory and our good. And therefore, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.